Hello, and welcome to Found TechCrunch's podcast, where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the folks who are building them. Today, I'm joined by an old friend and a dear colleague. Me, Daryl Etherington. I was like, I think that's a cue. And it, it was, yes. That actually was meant for the other person on the call. Oh, I see. Okay. And I'm also joined by Daryl. <laughs> Wait, there's nobody else on the call. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, good to have you on, though. How's it going? Doing great. This is unrelated, but I'm on this weird kick of foldable phones lately. So I got like a bunch of foldable phones over here and I'm folding and unfolding them left and right. Very interesting. How many is a bunch? Three, three different folding phones. Oh, so you couldn't have said more than several. True. Unrelated to today's topic. (laughs) What we are talking about today, we have a fun conversation for you with Nazrat Haled, the CEO and founder of Aseel, which started out as an e-commerce company to make it possible for local artisans in countries like Afghanistan to sell their handmade goods to customers around the world, but has since evolved into working in humanitarian aid as well, delivering food and emergency supplies to people in need in countries like Afghanistan as well as Turkey. So here is our conversation with Nazrat. Hi, Nazrat. How's it going? It's going well. How are you, Becca? I'm good. Hanging in there. Thanks for coming on the show today. We're really excited to chat about a seal. Yeah, really excited to be here. First time on TechCrunch. Ah, well, hopefully me and Daryl leave a good impression. We usually do that. Mm. Not always. We'll try. <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and get started? Nazrat, if you want to tell us a bit about a seal. Yeah, Asil uh, is my company. It means authentic, original, in quite a few languages. I started it six years ago, and it is a platform that enables underdeveloped countries to join the digital economy. Ooh, that's a big statement. Maybe if you want to dive a little bit further into that and what that's looked like so far and what Asil has been able to do. So part of my story, and as every founder interlinks with uh, what they're building, I was born a refugee in Pakistan. My mom and dad are Afghan. And when we were growing up, I was not allowed to take part in official universities and and schools because we were refugees. So then the internet was coming around that time. Around 2001, I started getting on the internet and it felt like now I'm connected. But as time went by and these products in the Silicon Valley area were more tailored to Western markets, somehow that feeling was then lost. So as more products came in, they had to have some infrastructure built. We started losing more people from the underdeveloped world getting into the digital economy. So think of it as the world's biggest e-commerce platforms only support the world's biggest economies because they have the fintech and supply chain infrastructure to support that. And so we're changing that. We started in Afghanistan, which is probably not the first choice, but if you really think of including a country into the digital economy, I think that should be the first one. And then now we are also in Turkey. In the next five years, we will add 46 other underdeveloped countries into the digital economy as well. And when you say digital economy, what do some of these people look like? Like, are you bringing businesses online? Are you bringing local services, goods? 
What exactly does this transformation look like? Yeah, so our first market is the artisan market. So think of the biggest artisan marketplace being Etsy, but they only support the top 18 world's most developed countries. And while all of pretty much 80% of global handmade production happens in underdeveloped countries because people have more time in their hand. So our first target when we started was the handmade sector. And since then, we have also joined forces with uh, other organizations to bring on board people who are going through a humanitarian crisis. So those are the two people that we're onboarding right now. And the two sides are called buy good and do good. Buy good is bringing on artisans that are left behind and do good is bringing on beneficiaries that are left behind. When you talk about that second category, so like how did you establish the business when you're thinking about, you know, like balance versus, well, I mean, generally, is it a for-profit business overall or, you know, is it a like a non-governmental organization or like a benefits corporation? Or how did you kind of think about that part of the business? We're a startup, just like all other startups. We're a C-Corp, Delaware. Initially, with the handmade part, it was pretty straightforward. It's a double-sided e-commerce marketplace. Throughout the process, when we went to Afghanistan and we were onboarding vendors, we got to about over 100 vendors, and then the country collapsed. If you might have seen it in the news, yeah. people uh, you know, jumping off planes and, and that whole horrific scene, it was more of an addition at that point, given that we did have an infrastructure built. In that country, it was very easy for us to decide and say, hey, we're also going to help people. Now, an important element of that is how do we onboard these artisans initially when we were planning? So there's a lot of work we did in that area where an artisan, the reason Etsy wouldn't onboard them is because they don't have digital literacy. They don't have the ability to accept payments, digital payments. So even if you buy their product, they can't get paid for it. And then they don't have the ability to ship their products to you. So lack of infrastructure, both supply chain and fintech and digital literacy. So we refactored this gig economy, Uber Eats drivers or a task rabbit sort of uh, platform and we called it the heroes and uh, the heroes platform is just everyday young people going out there and onboarding vendors to our platform and they get paid per vendor per product and so when we went to do do good and do good is now also tested in turkey with the earthquake and it's doing pretty great. We use the same heroes to now go and distribute those packages as if you would get your Uber Eats delivery to your home. So it's getting the last category of people first. I think if we're able to do that on a massive scale, it's going to put us in a great position to, to take over that other part of the world that Silicon Valley isn't even fighting for anymore. And something I'm curious about, because you mentioned that so many of these people were left off of these platforms for various reasons to begin with, what was it like bringing them on board? Was there a education element? Was there a trust side of it? Did you run against any hurdles like that, trying to bring these people online? 
One of the first things I noticed with the first six vendors that we onboarded was this difference in price. And it was crazy to me where I was like, hey, this shouldn't be right. So we're looking at, for instance, carpet weavers, where usually you would go out in physical space to your shops that are around California or in D.C., where we are headquartered, the carpets would cost a six square meter handmade carpet would cost like three to six thousand dollars with the artisan we would get a price of six hundred to eight hundred dollars and that difference in addition to you know putting all the supply chain and and fintech cost into it was eye-opening to us it just came to us that these artisans they haven't been looked into they have not been supported and whoever is in the process getting their carpets and selling them in the U.S. gets the three times profit that the artisan actually deserves because they've been doing it for a long time. So the price was a major element. There certainly was a lack of trust in the buyer's side where they were like, am I really getting this from Afghanistan? How is that even possible? That sort of came in with time where we gave the vendors their own shop, where they were able to then, through the heroes, engage and take custom orders. People really started to believe that. The same was the case on the do-good part, where you would go to our platform. What I think is a magical experience to go to a seal and buy a $38 food package and get it delivered to a family. A lot of people where we did identification with these cards that we call Omade or Hope ID cards. Uh, So you would get a notification just like Uber, hey, your order is received, your order is being delivered by Hero so-and-so, your order is delivered to Hope ID so-and-so. So when people started looking at those numbers, they couldn't really relate to it and say, I give money to say UNICEF or WFP and they send me a thank you email, you're giving me this Omade ID, I don't really know if I can trust that. So we added a video element to it where the hero now, when he leaves home and he's delivering your order, starts recording the video and you actually get a video feed of your donation going to a family. I find that magical. I see that all day long and orders come in and the heroes go locally, pick up the food items and deliver it to people that are hit by an earthquake that, you know, you you can see they don't have a home that they are living in. And so we had to go beyond what a usual platform would go through. But by going beyond what a usual platform giving you a text-based delivery update or a push notification on your phone by showing them that distance part of the world where their contribution is making a difference, make them fall in love with our platform. And we take pride in that now, even though if it's a lot more work to be able to create them a platform to record a video and get that uploaded and then the user sees it. Yeah, speaking of So it's sort of like the work involved and then just the overall model. Like I imagine it has to be a difficult conversation when you're going to investors, depending on who you're talking to, right? Like traditional investors would probably have a lot of questions about, oh, isn't this very high touch? And then also you're talking about the difference between like the traditional retailers and the markups. 
Like a lot of investors will be like, I like those markups though, right? Because they mean profit for me. So is there a lot of difficulty in explaining the business model and explaining where investors can benefit? And how do you face those challenges? Yeah, so why a market for us exists to start with is this misconception in investors' mind that the underdeveloped countries are a risk. I mean, obviously, Hmm. Afghanistan would be a huge risk to any VC, but we think the opposite of that. And we think whoever thinks that these 46 underdeveloped countries are not worth it, we don't think that VC is right for us to start with. We are the most bullish on underdeveloped countries because these markets are not touched. And while marketplaces in general are very competitive in developed countries, there isn't much in in many countries that we're competing with. So we're very bullish on that. Within the first year of me starting the company, obviously there was, you know, I went through the whole YC model, looking at 500 startups and so on, and really learning what this Silicon Valley thought process is. The things that I learned from that were amazing, and I still follow that same model. But my background was with the World Bank, where I had worked for seven years with the United Nations and the U.S. State Department, where I worked on international development projects. So that misconception exists in the market. And I think it's really good for us. For those that don't believe that, we tend to, in the first conversation, understand what the thought process of the investor is. And we walk away from the people who think that these markets are risky. I think it would be about time that they really understand. And and by then, I think it might be late for them. Was it hard to convince investors to come and join a company like Asil? Initially, I think the harder point was because I was pitching and pursuing this startup as a marketplace, as just another platform that's coming out here. It was only when the country of Afghanistan collapsed and within six days, we were able to use our infrastructure to deliver humanitarian aid where the UN and other institutions couldn't. And we got Mm. featured by Time magazine and everyone was really talking about us that I realized that I was talking to the wrong people. So the easier way now that really works is if I talk to an investor and they really think that there is a new frontier for the expansion of the digital economy and they want to join us, that puts us in a very different category than, say, a marketplace that is coming into a smaller market within the U.S. and wants to create a new product. So once somebody does believe that, hey, there is 46 other underdeveloped countries and they are all ready for us to go and capture, then it's very easy. And they usually listen and they they invest with a seal. So it's basically like you don't bother trying to convert or evangelize to people who have that skepticism because there's there's other fish in the sea, essentially, where you don't have to do that work. Is that kind of... 
a fair summary? Yes, I think it also goes on to the thought process of where I come in, I'm like, hey, I am a refugee born, raised, self-taught computer engineer who worked with the World Bank in the UN. Do you think I can build a big company that is going to be you know, successful versus, hey, I studied, I'm a YC graduate Mm. and I studied in Harvard. Now, I'm not saying a Harvard graduate who goes to YC is not able to create a big company, but if that's the sole thought process of an investor to think that those people are successful in this field, then I would love to challenge that. And that's sort of our mission as well, is to get more people from underdeveloped countries to really believe that tech is about your computer sitting there wherever you are, creating solutions versus this really small group of people who have always been using the same formula to keep creating successful ventures. And I am curious because... When you guys got started and you were going to focus on the artisans and sort of bringing people online in these countries, of course, that is a mission in itself and a mission-driven company. But adding on everything you've done with this extra layer of the humanitarian aid definitely adds another dynamic of what the mission of the company is. And I'm curious, what was that like for you personally, adding on this almost nonprofit side to the startup, especially because you were a young startup at the time, still growing, looking to raise the first few rounds of funding. What was it like adding on almost this whole second aspect to the business? A simple answer to that would be, I was very, very scared. And pretty much, you know, I had 25 people in that country at the time. And all my staff, they were crying. I can remember every single call, whoever I was talking to within my team was crying. And that was because the whole country had collapsed. But if I take a step back, the reason I left the World Bank where I worked for seven years, and for those that don't know, the World Bank is supposedly a really huge institution that is supposed to end poverty globally. The reason I left my job with them was because they were not looking at building this digital infrastructure. And that was something that I pursued for a very long time, but I wasn't able to get enough of the bureaucratic old mindset to really think that way. So in terms of the infrastructure, it wasn't a big pivot because since we started, we knew what is stopping the artisans to onboard the digital economy is their ability to sell their products, get paid and ship. So the infrastructure. So when we started, even on the handmade part of Asil, we were building the infrastructure. We were able to pay vendors. We were able to ship their products. And that was the main sort of building block on which we built the humanitarian side of Asil. So I think the smarter move at the beginning when we had built the company was not to say, hey, let's create a marketplace for artisans. Instead, it was let's create the infrastructure for underdeveloped countries and let's go to the hardest country, which is Afghanistan. And then if we did extend this infrastructure there, we'll be able to do this into all of the other 4,600 developed countries as well. Mm -hmm. 
I'm curious about that infrastructure building part, because I think that's, it is definitely the key, right, to like why you're able to do this versus other players. And the difficulty has been, you know, things like Stripe or whatever don't serve. So how hard is it standing that up to start with? And then how do you find the talent or whatever and navigate the, I guess, regulatory hurdles and things like that? And then once you have it set up, how easy is it to extend it to the other markets, like you said, you know, you're going to be able to do after crossing that hardest hurdle of Afghanistan? Yeah, I usually answer that with it depends on how greedy you are. <laughs> so so if you create the infrastructure, thinking of when Stripe, for instance, was created, it was one infrastructure created for the most of Western world. Right. So if you're thinking of extending this to other underdeveloped countries, if you're really greedy and you think I'll create one solution and I'll extend it to 40 countries at once, that is not happening because your solution has to be built based on every country. And we love that because A, once you create that solution for a specific country, Tomorrow, even when Stripe wants to go back to that country, they will have to do exactly, at least exactly the same amount of work as we have done. Sure. And it would be very hard for them to replace us. So we knew that limitation in advance. And then second was, given that we're not really looked into or counted as, and this is not just me as an Afghan-American entrepreneur, but there is all these underdeveloped countries where they have entrepreneurs and they are not looked into, you know, they're not under pressure to create the next big thing as soon as possible. Mm. Then that really helps us because a country in itself is pretty big. So if we're able to get one country, which in our case, initially, for instance, on the fintech side, went from cash deliveries to mobile payments to integration with, you know, mobile payment gateways to creating our own solution with the vendors. And then the Omade ID card, which is an identification tool that we use. So our payment options to our vendors compared to Etsy are very different. Mm -hmm. We might be able to top them up on their Omade ID card, which some of their community might use to get aid from other people that they know in other countries. Or nowadays, we also use the Omade ID cards for NGOs in large-scale international institutions to send aid to them. So it needs to be built per country. It takes time, but it's worth it because you have that country with you for a long time and other people can't really come in easily and take that away from you. Makes sense. Yeah, building them out as you go, right? And now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. And noting that you guys are based in D.C., what is it like, especially it's funny to think about now because such a big conversation in startups in Silicon Valley is the remote work, hybrid work, in person. And everyone's like, oh, we do our best work when everyone's in person or everyone's together. And in your company, you guys are based over here. But of course, the majority of your work happens over in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and a lot of your team members are over there as well. How is it like for you leading a company that is so far away? And unlike some distributed teams, you couldn't just every day or every week or something just like hop on a plane and go and visit everyone in the same way a company split between New York and San Francisco could. What is it like 
leading that type of a company? Yeah, so I think a major part, I look into the infrastructure. That's my primary job. And I want to make sure that the infrastructure for Afghanistan, Turkey, which is our second country now, and then the U.S. side of things is functional, it's working, and it's expanding. So unlike typical CEOs, I don't have the luxury of doing you know, all those things that they do. And given that we didn't really have a lot of that intersection with Silicon Valley, in a way we were rejected because it's not like we didn't go and we didn't reach out to people. We did a lot of that. But given that they didn't understand why we're crazy enough to go and focus on countries that other people would avoid, I didn't really get too much entangled into these requirements of, you know, reporting to VCs and doing all of these things that entrepreneurs do, which I don't really find much value in. So a lot of my time is spent on building infrastructure. I spent a lot of time in DC talking to large scale international organizations in Turkey, talking to vendors and around surrounding areas of Afghanistan, talking to refugees. For Afghanistan, we have a country team. For Turkey, we have a country team. And then the the U.S. team is mostly that leadership sort of team members that are supposedly put in place to serve these country teams. So at a large scale, we might have regional teams and country teams, and they would be focused on their countries while we are focused on supporting them. So it's almost like decentralized a little bit. The leadership style, mm. if you're working almost kind of like, no, no, I don't want to say the head engineer because you definitely do more than that, but you're definitely more like product driven than some CEOs. Yeah. We also have this concept of decentralized aid, which came after the do good expansion. So if you look at, for example, the World Food Program, and we look at the World Food Program as a competitor. The World Food Program is based in New York. An emergency happens. The emergency coordinators sit in plane and they, they go to the emergency. Then they bring in food from other countries. And there is the distribution, which is extremely centralized and very, very inefficient. According to their own reporting, 64% of the funds go to a person that's hungry. And we have decentralized that where locally the delivery is done by the hero, refactoring Uber Eats model there, and we pick the products from the shops. So we are really big believers of decentralized aid. We're sort of pushing that agenda globally. And we think communities should take part. And while we do provide the infrastructure and enabling their own community to join the digital economy, if it's the artisans, if it's the heroes, or if it's just our local team members who create local software solutions based on the principles of that YC model that we closely learn from and implement. So decentralization is a big key in bringing forward that 4 billion people that are not part of the digital economy yet. And I know we've talked a bit about getting the merchants and the artisans and people in these developing countries onto the platform, but I'm curious about the other side because a lot of it is a marketplace. How would you describe the customer base 
for a seal and kind of how do you work to get the word out there to people who can both do the humanitarian aid side as well as buy from these artisans here in the U.S. and beyond? Yeah. So I think a bigger part of creating a marketplace requires a lot of investment, which we were not able to, at our starting point, get from our pre-seed round and our seed round. So we had to think of a more innovative way of, you know, there's a lot of marketing cost that a marketplace requires in order to be established, especially if you're a new one and it's not 2002 and to 10. So what we did focus on was to find big institutions initially to partner with us. And as we did that, for instance, obviously you can go to the platform and send aid directly to one family. What we also did was to go to bigger institutions and tell them, hey, do you want to support Afghanistan or do you want to respond to the Turkey earthquake? And so they would go and buy a thousand humanitarian packages in our platform and then deliver it to specific families that they thought they want to support. So certainly learning from our mistakes, a thinking that the tech ecosystem is very open-minded in funding companies wherever they came from. And then secondly, building a platform specifically for all customers versus later on focusing on large institutions. And now we're, we're seeing that traction come in from our everyday customers as well. So going from B2B to direct to consumers is now becoming a move, whereas initially it was pretty hard for us because the ecosystem thinks of us as outsiders. So we're making solid progress on that and our customers love it. We have uh, a 20% overhead for handmade items, whereas in a normal market, a carpet would be a 300% overhead from their side. So the customers love that. It takes them a little bit longer than say Etsy or Amazon, but when they do get it, they value it a lot more than their, you know, everyday order, which comes in from the US or Europe for the most part. The more far, the more value people give to the item. I am like, just, can you just explain a bit more about the logic of like going, because so much of, you know, if you go to the site and everything is about, you know, donation and humanitarian work, but... As you mentioned, like you're you're a for-profit company, right? So like how do you kind of like think about presenting that to the customer as like, oh yeah, like you're helping, but it is a it's still a for-profit business, right? Yeah. So overhead and it helps that I came from that space, the yeah, yeah. bank and the UN and so on. We consider overhead if it's a nonprofit that has an overhead, we will look at the example of the World Food Program in my rationale for making you donate to us rather than them is they have a 64% overhead. You would get 64 cents off a dollar delivered to the beneficiary. With us, we charge you 16%, which is one six. Hmm. Then obviously, when in fragile Afghanistan context, that percentage goes to over 50% when you give money to WFP. 
you also don't have the option of understanding where your money went. Right. Whereas with us, you have the Omed ID and now you get that video. And so that totally gives you a different experience and the customers look at the overhead the same way. So if the overhead in the World Food Program is going to staff members and you know people flying in from other countries, in our case, that's going to the local hero mm. and we, we charge that transaction cost, we think it's fair. And in addition, because we want to grow in all these 46 other countries that does require this support, we want to keep this and we want to be proud of the fact that we are private. It gives us the ability to expand, to bring in more people, to grow at the way that these global startups have grown. And so hopefully for a good cause, we're able to do that. So we haven't really seen that within larger institutions and individual donors. It's only when they give it a try that they really understand what the difference is and why it makes sense for this to be a for-profit venture. And kind of a follow-up to that would be, since prior to launching this company, you were working in the humanitarian aid space as a whole with work with the World Bank and United Nations. What has it been like launching your own company in this space, especially with it being a for-profit company? What made you decide to take the plunge into this direction when you were sort of already working in this general space? I think a lot of that, it was a big leap because those jobs are very secure. Mm. Unlike the tech sector, once you get into a UN job, it's very hard for you to get fired. So moving on from that, I think the biggest reason for me was the reason I started working with them was exactly the same. I went through being a refugee and not a refugee in the US. I was a refugee in Pakistan, which was very hard. And I came back to Afghanistan at the time thinking I will help build my country. And as I really went in through these institutions, I understood that it is not happening. And so when I then came up to the US and I really tried to sort of bend those organizations to work in a more digital way, and this mm. is pre-COVID, it didn't work out. So there was really not much of an option for me to look at this really big opportunity for impact and creating a venture and, and not take it. It was mostly the same reason why I joined the international development institutions that I really had to leave working with them. Oh, cool. Well, I think we have time for one last question. And I'm curious, based on things we've talked about already, obviously building this digital infrastructure for these countries to bring more people online, what's next for the company? I know, of course, things going on in Afghanistan, the humanitarian aid there probably isn't a short-term thing in your plans, at least, but kind of like, what are you thinking about in general for the company and what's next? Yeah, so we're trying to expand to five countries. So we have Afghanistan and Turkey, what we call the pickup countries. And we're going to add three more countries into that. I think a bigger shift within a seal story is going to come when we convince the Silicon Valley that this shift is worth it and it's really an opportunity and it really is with internet penetration around that 93 percent 
even in a place like Afghanistan, payment systems custom built and tested, it's a no-brainer to really get into these countries. And I think when, when they line up, I think that's going to be a good day for us to celebrate. Yeah, so we're still going to go with our mission and it's 46 underdeveloped countries. Once that is done, I think we might really look at the world in a different way where it's not one-sided, where we think, you know, innovation is only happening in these Western markets and we keep on building further on top of what we have built. You know, once we open that other side and a whole big world, it's going to be a very different world. And, and we would love to be that company that opens that door or play a big role in opening that door uh, for the rest of the world to join this digital party that we're at. Neat. Yeah, I think it's really cool the way that you're taking some of the mechanics and structures that benefit startups and technology innovation companies and then like applying it to this model that is mired in like i don't know stasis for lack of a better word like you know the big inertia laden international aid organizations they don't have that quickness right so that's i'll be interested to watch too and see how it happens as you continue to apply that model awesome yep no well thanks so much for coming on the show thank you so much for having us And that was our conversation with Nazareth. Daryl, what'd you think? Yeah, that was very interesting. I think it's, uh, I think I expressed some of my concern in the interview. I mean, this isn't to say Nazareth is doing this, but it's always suspicious to me when a company is like doing a lot of stuff that would appear to a casual observer to be charitable, but is not like a registered charity or a B Corp or something, right? But yeah, it sounds like it's more for him about avoiding some of the cruft and overhead that comes with being a registered charity. And then, you know, the counter argument for that would be some of that is there for a reason, which in part is to make sure that nobody in the equation gets taken advantage of on either side, right? No, you do bring up a good point. Because stuff like that, I mean, we were just on equity earlier today and we were talking about another company that is a nonprofit with a for-profit arm. Mm, is it OpenAI? Remember when they were no, that? No, but in the <laughs> same way, but we were kind of just like, okay, so like, how does that work? Right. Like, I don't fully understand like how it comes together in that way. Of course, we should have asked this, but my assumption is it just wanted to move fast and setting this up kind of thing. Because, like, I mean, who knows how long it takes to right. become a registered nonprofit, which, of course, as you mentioned, isn't necessarily a bad thing for it to be a lengthy process to make sure you are weeding out potential bad actors. But I definitely think for-profit allows you to be quick and nimble in a way that being a nonprofit doesn't always allow. It sure does. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same as, like, a public versus a non-public company, but, you know, without the additional benefits of that, because obviously a public company has, like... It's still seeking profit and stuff, right? But like, it has a lot of the same requirements of like a public company without any of the benefit. But then he added it on to what was a purely for-profit business and then was like, opportunistically, I think I can also help out in this specific situation using the infrastructure that I've already built for the for-profit business, right? Or I'm in the process of building. So it is interesting. I think it will, you know, at a certain size or something, he probably would have to do something like what you're talking about, where you would split it in two ways. Yeah, I've heard of that in a few different 
context, I'm not sure how one side works with the other. There's actually even just a brewery nearby locally where their one beer brand is a B Corp, but then their other primary beer brand is just a straight for profit entity and they're a combined entity, which is interesting. Oh my God. You got to report back. You should ask them why. Because in theory, they could just make a beer that donated the profits to something. Like having them actually like split down like that is right. seems complicated. It, I think it is. I think they started out separate and then came together after the fact. So maybe that's part of it. But Oh, yeah. okay. Unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing I found most interesting about this conversation is bringing the artisans online is... A very interesting piece of this and it's great that people like that will be able to sort of sell to a broader audience especially because everything happening in countries like Afghanistan they're just very cut off mm-hmm. from the rest of the world so that's cool on its own but I think the infrastructure piece of this is really key because in theory you build out a way for them to take payments and them to do orders like that could just apply to so many other areas yeah. which I think is probably where the company will likely see itself heading just as other people are like oh well I have this idea and I need those pipes to run it yeah which I think could be very interesting if everything sort of works out as it's heading in yeah absolutely I mean it's a whole huge economic engine that is essentially ignored by like the stripes of the world right but the reason they do it is risk appetite right like they're like we don't like the risk associated with this and I've seen this like a bit it's funny because I haven't been a fan in so long, so I haven't had the chance to bring this up. But when I was at Shopify, uh, we dealt with this all the time. Oh. There was a category, there was a specific category, and it was hair extensions. And Stripe would not allow you to process transactions for hair extensions because they saw an undue amount of fraud with that category. Interesting. Yes. And it was it was a very complex issue because it was also seen as like discriminatory, right? Because it's a very specific audience and market that wants hair extensions mostly, and that's like black women generally, right? So there was this whole, it was back and forth and whatever, and a lot of people were saying, oh, it's not fair that Shopify doesn't allow this type of business. And it was like, no, we actually don't mind that type of business. It's just that our payment provider won't allow this, right? And then eventually the payment provider did, like Stripe relented and determined that it was an acceptable amount of risk in that category and added it. And then, you know, everybody celebrated like, oh, we can add this product category to Shopify stores or whatever, right? So those change and evolve. I mean, another also controversial, but in a very different way, sort of like product category is registered goods or regulated goods rather i should say so you know marijuana cannabis stuff and a lot of the payment providers wouldn't and i think maybe still won't touch that with like a 10-foot pole yeah most still won't yeah and there's like porn stuff also a lot of gateways won't touch it there are specific payment gateways that will exclusively deal on that because again it's an opportunity left kind of on the table by people who have the other risk appetite But yeah, I think, you know, we didn't talk about this either. So part of the reason is they just don't think it's worth it market size wise. And I think we talked about that a little bit with Nazareth. But then the other part is like anti-money laundering because they're held to very strict anti-money laundering requirements. And unfortunately, a lot of these markets end up potentially being a path to funding of terrorism, right? I'm not saying they do that, but it's like some of these places are places where terrorist organizations operate. And then, you know, they might get a revenue stream through one of these things, and then the payment provider is potentially liable for that based on you know North American requirements for AML and identity protection or anti-fraud stuff. So 
It's a very, very complex issue, and there are, and this is why I wanted to talk more about the investor conversations because I assume that's what's going to come up more than anything else. And it sounded like that was where Nazar was like, "Yeah, like, but there are people who are like, he gets into the conversations, and he can tell right away, like, oh, okay, you're going to be stuck in all of this stuff, and you're not going to see the opportunity down the road, right?" But like I said, with the example with hair extensions, like those attitudes change over time, and then right. Yeah, if he has all the infrastructure built out, then he's in a very good position as the potential for risk decreases and the appetite for risk increases or whatever happens on a global scale, you're in a good spot, right? No, and the risk profile piece is super interesting because obviously the risks you just mentioned are totally valid and things you definitely have to worry about when building in these countries that don't necessarily have the same guardrails that took the U.S. a while to build in themselves. Mm. But the other thing with risk is I there's this one investor I talked to. He has like a $50 million fund and he exclusively invests in companies in Pakistan. And while you get some of the same potential risks there, he was saying the other thing you get on the flip side is if you were to back, say, a company like a SEAL there, you have no competition. Right. So it's like if it works, none of the other big guys are trying to come in and build there and you'd have to have another entrepreneurial team trying to tackle the exact same issue to have competition. Yeah. So like that piece of the risk is totally different as well. Yeah. So it's like you could definitely see getting an early, even if the company, not that I think they will pivot, but say that they do, having this basis, it's like they already are building without competition, yeah. which definitely makes a big difference and allows you, again, also to be more nimble if things do end up changing or you need to implement something else or take something in a new direction. It's a lot easier when people can't just be like, oh, well, I'll go to X instead. Yeah. It's like anything else, any other business building where you're like, okay, I'm going to assess all my risk in the one column and then I'm going to assess the opportunity in the other column. And then if the opportunity outweighs the risk in my estimation, like I'll go for it basically, right? But I think what helps Nazareth is he's there like he understands the market very well and a lot of these like a stripe of the world is like i don't even understand that market so my my risk my assessment of risk is going to be very different than someone who like understands it very well and probably won't he's going to have a lot of time to do what you're talking about in the advantageous sense of like building his thing and building his moat without fear of large incumbents because that risk thing is not going to change for them for quite a while, right? It's going to take a lot for them to get comfortable, especially now at the size they're at, right? Like, they're like, we got to eat this fucking buffet over here in North America. Like, we can't worry about the potential buffets elsewhere, especially when, you know, there's other things about it that we're like, kind of like, not sure about. Yeah. And just the concept of getting a country like that just more online and like more connected to the outside world just in general, is a good thing yeah. for both Afghanistan and some of the other countries they're targeting. Because it is crazy because like even you and I, like our view of how things work over there and stuff is limited because there just aren't as many people to tell us yeah. about how things are like. So it's, it is kind of crazy to even think about that because it's like so removed from even when we talk to like, oh, emerging tech markets, like an emerging tech market's like Poland. Right. Like that's a very different country, a very different scenario. So it is interesting to think of like, how large of a scale of a problem this is tackling too. And it's a chicken and egg problem too, like you mentioned, right? Like it's like you actually don't get improvements in that risk profile unless there's investment into the place. Right. By building that stuff out, they're setting up the economy for massive potential growth down the road and they're willing to do it when other people aren't, which is amazing. For sure. Separately, snooping around on the website, I was like, that's a plate set I would buy. Oh. That's a rug I would buy. Oh, yeah. Definitely do some browsing. Did you make some, did you do some holiday shopping yet or something? Or 
No, no purchases yet? Not yet. Okay, Not okay. Yet. All right, keep us posted. Keep the found community posted. Oh, yeah. We'll do a review. <laughs> found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.